Well, good morning, and uh, uh, just a really big thanks to uh, the, the whole worship team. Um, I, 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 you'll see this as, as we read through uh, a bit of uh, Hebrews 6 and, and through chapter 7, but it's like they, that was the whole sermon. They did it. Uh, there's no need to even, well, I'll, I'll say a few things, I suppose, but uh, uh, it was uh, just a, a really wonderful time of reflection, and I, I really appreciate uh, the whole team. Uh, for all that you do to make that happen. Um, we are continuing in the book of Hebrews. We skipped over a little bit, and uh, if you are very type A like me and you want to go through, um, I, did, I preached a sermon in July uh, on, on that, ish, on that uh, passage that we are skipping over in, in uh, chapters 5 uh, and 6, and we're going to pick up this morning um, in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13, and I'm going to read through to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21, um, and, uh, and so let's, let's do that now to begin with. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made, made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes, through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who's become a priest, not on the basis of the legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would today draw closer to you, learn more about you, our great high priest, in all of the ways that you give us access to God. And even as we grapple with um, uh, maybe strange and more obscure things in Scripture, may we see that it all points to your son Jesus, and by him we gain access and intimacy and abundant, joyful life with you, our Father and Creator. We pray that we would experience that this morning. Amen. As we've been going through Hebrews, we are providing this sort of necessary comparison to Jesus and anything else. And we're saying that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. And in fact, last week we talked about how Jesus is better in this way when he serves as our great high priest talked about how Jesus gives us direct access to God. And so this week, we're kind of still talking about this priest idea and bringing up the issue of priesthood and kind of turning it on its head a little bit and showing us that Jesus is not just a priest. He is a different category of priest. He is a whole other order. Whatever you knew about priesthood, Jesus is better even than that. And let me explain it, the author seems to say. And so today, I want you to get this, that Jesus is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. And so he, he kind of starts by talking about this, this Levitical order, and we have this idea of like, you know, he's talking about some of the, the, the qualifications, and I use this word very deliberately, qualified, and, and looking at qualifications of, of priests, and we do need to look at that a little bit. And sometimes priest is kind of a hard thing because we have priests, uh, but maybe it's not quite in the same context. 
Um, the, the, the author here is talking to a people that would have been very, very familiar with the Levitical priesthood. Remember, the temple is still standing in Jerusalem when this letter is written to the Jewish diaspora uh, you know, outside of Israel because of persecution. And they are very familiar with the Old Testament, with the Levitical law, and with the order of the priesthood that is in the temple. And maybe we kind of miss some of that. And yet we, I think, have plenty of, of um, analogies in our lives for times when we need an intermediary. At its heart, a priest was an intermediary between the common people and a holy God. And there was some of this intermediation necessary. And we do this all the time. In fact, maybe... Uh, you have a car that you love and you work on, but on occasion, it is just way too much for you and you need an intermediary, someone who is qualified, and you go and take it to a special place and they work on it in this way. I, uh, you know, uh, I am frequently reminded of my own ineptitude whenever I use a certain machine that sits in my pocket that is like indispensable to me, and yet I don't have a clue how to use it. Um, I need help all the time, uh, mostly for, you can ask the other people on staff. Last week they were talking about, oh, yeah, you just, uh, you know, to, to do the bowling thing, you just register on the app, and I go, okay, so do I, and I could see all of them roll their eyes, and Kevin goes, just, I'll do it for you, it's fine, okay? Um, <laughs> I learned like last week how to work the Keurig machine, okay? I'm, I'm just, you know, this, this morning Kevin was like, so have you figured out how to use, how to use the new printer yet? And I was like, no. <laughs> I, maybe you have one of these machines too. And maybe you know your way around it, but on occasion, you need help. On occasion, you have to go and have someone else who is more qualified, maybe replace a battery or something like that, work on it on your behalf. And you take it to this whole holy high temple in Quebec City or in Montreal. And you, you get to these uh, blue-shirted, lanyard-wearing priests who make... Uh, intercession for you on behalf of the iPhone because you're not qualified to do it. You know, the analogy breaks down after a while, but you, know, you get what I'm saying here, okay? We, we need this kind of intermediary, and that's what the Levitical priesthood served as. Now, I want to dive into this, this priestly order that's discussed, and what, what we're going to do is skip over the part in chapter six. Last week I told you that the author of Hebrews is really, really great at giving you a good topical sentence and then explaining it. I wanna get back to the topic and the exhortation and the big, big idea, and we'll get back to that. But let's first go to Hebrews chapter seven, and then we'll jump back to chapter six a little bit later. And in chapter seven, in these first three verses, what the author is doing is referencing a priesthood that is unlike the Levitical priesthood. And saying this kind of, um, uh, you know, like referencing the Levitical priesthood, but saying, uh, yes, but Melchizedek is a different kind of priest. If we're talking about the order of Melchizedek, 
we need to talk about who this guy is, and references, uh, quite frankly, a really kind of obscure uh, figure in the Bible. In fact, Melchizedek is mentioned way, way more often in the book of Hebrews than anywhere else. In the Old Testament, there are exactly two times Melchizedek is mentioned. In Psalm 110, which the author is kind of expositing for his or her uh, audience, but also the story from which we get and learn all that we do about Melchizedek is a grand total of like three verses in Genesis 14. That's it. And so it bears kind of going and looking a little bit at who this guy Melchizedek is. And the author kind of talks about in the middle of this battle between kings. And so what's happened is that Abram, this is before he is Abraham, but Abram, his nephew, is taken captive during this kind of skirmish between these two groups of kings. There are these five kings and these four kings, and they're going to war. And Abram goes and he rescues his nephew. And then something really strange happens. I'm going to jump there. If you want to look at Genesis 14, you can. I'll also have it on the screen for you. But this is Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, him being Abram, at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Okay, there's been this battle, these kings, they're all vying for position and authority. Abram goes and he rescues Lot and he kind of serves this defeat and it makes the other group of kings go, hey, who's this Abram guy? We want him on our team. We better go out and meet with him and try and get him on our side and see if we can get him on, on our team. And so he, the king of Sodom, is going to meet with Abram. And so you might think the very next verse is going to be about that meeting. And then there's this like weird interception. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Whoa, hang on. Who are we talking about? Who? Where? What? Huh? Who is this guy? He comes out of nowhere. And it says he's this king of Salem. Where's that? That's not a place yet. And he's a, a priest of God most high. And he brings out bread and wine. I don't know if that reminds you of anything that maybe we just did here. And for those that are reading this thousands of years later and learning all of Scripture points to Jesus, this is meant to be this nod and to say, hey, here's a picture of the hero that I am going to send, of the promised Messiah. And Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, and his name, explained in Hebrews chapter 7, means king of righteousness. And then it, we're told he's the king of Salem, which means peace. It's where, uh, you know, the Hebrew word shalom or the Arabic word salam comes from. It means peace. And this isn't a place that anyone knows of yet. This, this Salem, where is that? And they meet in this valley. And what happens is he blesses him. Melchizedek intercepts the other king. And he pronounces a blessing before the king of Sodom could get there. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then there's one more little detail added. 
and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. In other words, Abram recognized the authority that this priest king from who knows where comes out of nowhere. He recognizes the authority that he has by paying him a tenth, giving him allegiance, in much the same way that later on the people of Israel were required to give a tenth of what they had to the Levites in order to recognize their authority and support their ministry. Abram does this to this Melchizedek guy. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. And in the next, um, you know, in, in verse 3, he mentions something very interesting about this guy who comes out of nowhere. And he says, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, what a lot of people take to mean is, here's this guy who's immortal, who comes. I don't think that's what the author is saying. Cards on the table, I believe that Melchizedek is supernatural. I believe that Melchizedek may even be a theophany, a sort of Old Testament preview of the second person of the Trinity, of, of a pre-incarnate Jesus coming and appearing before Abram. But I don't think that is necessarily what the author is saying here. What they're saying is, this person has no recorded genealogy. We don't know who their mother is. We don't know who their father is. We don't know from which tribe. In fact, all that we're told is that he's the king of this city that doesn't exist yet, but will eventually. What does that even mean? You see, Melchizedek stands in sharp contrast with the Levitical priesthood, because the Levitical priesthood had some very strict requirements. And they had to, you know, the, the genealogy of everyone coming from the family of Aaron is recorded in Scripture. If you want some really wonderful bedtime reading, uh, you can go and check that out in First Chronicles and see that genealogy of the tribe of Levi and see everyone recorded there. You will not find the name Melchizedek in there. He is not from the tribe of Levi. He is not descended from Aaron. He is not qualified for the Levitical priesthood. But what the author is saying is, Melchizedek is even better. He belongs to an even better order of priests. And in fact, Abram shows this because Abram, and when you think about it, Levi and Aaron, who are kind of still within Abram, they bless Melchizedek. They pay the tithe and honor and homage to him. And there's something really interesting that happens right after this in Genesis chapter 14. When the story does pick up with the king of Sodom, he comes and he says, listen, I want to give you this and I want to give you that. And in exchange, all that I want from you is some men and some allegiance. And I want you on our side in this battle between kings. You know what Abram says? You're a little too late. I cannot give you my allegiance. I have already given it away. I cannot say, yes, I am with you and pay homage to you. Someone else has already taken that place in my life, and my allegiance is already given to this king of Salem. And so, already, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, like, Melchizedek is just 
a, a priest of a totally different category, totally and completely different. And he, and he spent some time explaining all of this and why Melchizedek is even better and how even this idea of the Levitical priesthood wasn't quite good enough. It didn't give perfection. There were some drawbacks. There were some things tainted by sin regarding this Levitical priesthood that was not good enough. And in fact, he says, look, we know it wasn't perfect. Why on earth would we need some other kind of priesthood, of order of priests like Melchizedek, if it was good enough? It's not. Because Melchizedek is even better because he is categorically different. And he goes on even to say, there's even kind of a change in the law. You can look at verse 12, uh, where he says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And what we're talking about there is a change in covenant. You know, if, if I'm going to change the terms and conditions of our contract, we need to get together and sign something new and have a new, you know, broker deal. And that's what he's talking about. Next week, we're going to talk more about this covenant, this idea of the, the covenants given between God and his chosen people and how Jesus is this broker of a new covenant. We'll get to that next week. But over and over again, he's saying, this is why this is categorically different. This is a new kind of priest, a new kind of priesthood. And then he transitions to this time where he's talking about why Jesus fits this. In the same way that, that Melchizedek is better in a completely different category of priesthood, Jesus is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. You know, in verse 14, it says, um, for it's evident that our Lord, he's talking about Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, the kings of Israel and Judah, they're meant to come from this line. In fact, all of the kings of Judah come from the line of Judah. And we're told that the Messiah, the king who would save all of Israel, comes from the tribe of Judah. The Levites are a totally different tribe. And yet here comes Jesus, who is not qualified to be a Levitical priest. But that's okay, because he's a different kind of priest. Melchizedek wasn't qualified to be a Levitical priest either, He's a different kind. It's an even better order of priesthood because Jesus is better than anything or anyone we could ever possibly worship, and he is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. And then he gets into this idea of why Jesus is better because, uh, you know, it's... Uh, sorry, I've lost my place here. Um, not concerning bodily descent this idea of not concerning bodily descent. What he's saying is, in the same way that Melchizedek, we're provided no genealogy, Jesus, even though we have a full genealogy, he is qualified to be our high priest, not because of his genealogy, but because of this other order of priesthood. And that's very important. In fact, the Levitical order of priesthood had some, had some uh, restrictions. There was an age restriction, and at various times, 30, 25, and 20 served as this sort of minimum age in order to enter the Levitical priesthood. 
But there's also an age cap. And many of you might be saying, yes, but Daniel, isn't Numbers uh, chapter 8, verse 24, doesn't that delineate that there's a a cap on the age? Yes, you're right, absolutely, I can't get anything past you guys. At age 50, there was forced retirement for all of the Levitical priests. At age 50, they, they aged out, and we got a new generation of priests. And what he is saying here in verse 16, or excuse me, let's back up to verse 15, says this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. What he's saying is, here is this priest We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We don't know if he had kids. We don't know who his parents were. We don't even know if he had parents necessarily. And he serves as a priest that has no expiration, unlike the Levitical priesthood. Can you imagine what would be like, what it would be like to have a priest who was this kind of priest of this order, this powerful, who had also conquered death? Can you imagine what it would be like if we had a great high priest of a wholly different order who did not have to retire at age 50, whose priestly nature carried on in perpetuity even if they were seated at the right hand of God? Even if they were, as Jesus has done, ascended into heaven, perpetually advocating for you and for me on our behalf and not having to make new atonement because he did that already and Christ's blood was good enough. Can you imagine what that kind of priest would be like? That's Jesus. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. And as the author is talking to this group of people who is tempted to go back to following this this sort of temple religion that centers around brokers who are, you know, uh, only between ages 30 and 50 and, and broken, sinful people, he's saying, why would you go back to that? We have such a better priest. And it's someone who is even better than that because he is our king too. Jesus is better than anything or anyone you could ever possibly worship. That's who this Jesus is. And then he does that by quoting Psalm 110. You see all throughout Hebrews, uh, the, the author is kind of giving this sermon on these passages from Psalms. We saw it from Psalm 2, this very messianic psalm. We saw it in Psalm 95, which Trudy read just a little bit ago. And we see it here in Psalm 110, which is again a very messianic psalm. And the only other place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned. And as we see this in the latter verses of, of this section that we're looking at today in 17 through 21, we see this word pop up, this oath. Because God has appointed Jesus to this position. God has named him in this way and said, he is my promised Messiah. I am putting my seal of approval on him. You better listen to what he says. And he does that with an oath, it says. What kind of oath are we talking about? What does that mean? Well, and here's where we go back to the whole big idea to begin with in verses 
13 through 17 of the previous chapter. Excuse me, 13 through the rest of of the chapter in chapter 6. This oath, because this whole section starts with the author kind of giving a, a reason to be certain. If someone is convincing me not to turn away from Jesus, stick with Jesus, whatever you do, cling to Jesus. Don't go back to that old religion. Even though you're facing intense persecution, I promise you it's worth it. You've got to stick it out with Jesus. One might say, why? How do you know? How can I be sure? How can I have certainty? And the author is saying, this is how you can be sure. There is a certainty to the oath given because God sealed it with an oath. And in fact, he did it hundreds of years ago with this oath that he's given. And if you read verse 13 there, 13 and 14, he's referencing another part of Abraham's life. And maybe you've got a footnote that tells you this is from Genesis chapter 22. And how when God comes and he reaffirms the promise that he had given to Abraham, by now he is Abraham, he has changed his name. It was easier apparently 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East than it is to change your name in Quebec in 2023, as my wife is figuring out, but that's all right. He has changed his name now, and and he is given this promise. It's reiterated to him. And I got to tell you, there is so much, like reading through this and realizing how rich the, the text is throughout the life of Abraham. I, in the next few years, we got to do a sermon series that's just the life of Abraham. And the, the culmination is Genesis chapter 22. It is a masterful, masterful story that is told. And it is beautiful from start to finish. It is great literature. It has great, rich theology. And it has all the best parts of good storytelling as well. And it's wonderful. And Genesis 22, and I commend it to you to read in its entirety uh, this week. Genesis 22 is about this time where God has, has kind of told Abraham what is happening. He has told him what he is going to do, and and he has made this promise. And throughout all of his life, Abraham shows a severe lack of faith. He messes up. He goes to Egypt and he lies that his wife is his sister because he fears for his death, even after God has said, I'm going to make you a great nation. He tries to put uh, God's plan into his own hands by saying, look, God's not going to give you a son, Sarah, so we might as well try and have a son uh, with, with your handmaiden. That's never a good idea. You know, he just screws up over and over again. He finally has a son, Isaac, his treasured, beloved, long promised son. And Genesis 22 opens with God saying, well, the author tells us God's testing Abram. Abraham. We don't know that. You know, Abraham doesn't know that, but we do. And he tells him, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him. And Abraham demonstrates this incredible faith, knowing God has a plan, knowing God is a God of resurrection and the power over life and death itself. And it called, like the very center of the story, which is important in, in Hebrew poetic structure, the very center of the story comes where Isaac says, hey, dad, uh, you got the wood, I see your knife, 
We got the fire. Are we missing something? Uh, Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. Don't worry, son. God himself will give us a lamb to make atonement for us here. And he does. And when he comes and he reiterates the same promise that he has been given, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to make you a blessing. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. He makes this oath. And he swears, as the author tells us, by something greater. Now, when you make an oath, you have to swear by something greater than yourself. We don't do a lot of oath-making uh, nowadays. Uh, my, my kids and I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, um, and it, it you know, was written in the 40s by a Brit. Uh, and one of the things that the children will say on occasion, oh, by Jove. And, and my kids are like, what the heck is that? <laughs> Well, it's the Roman God, and that's where we get Jupiter. It's kind of the Roman equivalent of Zeus, and he's swearing, but it's fine. you know. And maybe we don't talk like that, but maybe you've said something like, dude, I swear on my parents, whatever. You know, I swear on my kids, I swear on, on my entire collection of baseball cards, whatever it is, something that means a lot to you. You're meant to swear on something greater. God cannot swear on anything greater than himself, so he just swears by himself. He just says, look, I just, I just am, okay? And you have to trust me because I have made these promises and I'm doing it. I am faithful to these promises that I am giving you. And this idea of Abraham patiently waiting, uh, you know, it's 25 years between when he first hears this promise from God and this oath sworn to him. And yes, he has patiently waited. But here is where just this wonderful, awesome, beautiful thing happens in Abraham's life. And as we think about Jesus and how Jesus is uniquely qualified, to be both our priest and our king. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling to first century Jews, but he is using a story from 1,800 years previously. And so as we, as we do every single week, ask the question, so what? What does this have to do with us? There is no more temple. There is no, you know, we're not part of some Jewish diaspora facing intense persecution. What does this have to do with us? We can look at this and claim these same promises by the same way that the author explains to them that they can claim their promises. As you go on in chapter 6, verse 17, um, he gives us the so what. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, God doesn't change. Even in the songs that we were singing beforehand, God, you never change. God, you remain. Your unfailing love, uh, you, you, the faithful one, so unchanging. All of these songs that we were singing, it's about how God does not change. And when he makes a promise, he doesn't lie because his character stays the same. Unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, 
his promise and his oath in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do you catch what he's saying? Because of what God did 1,800 years ago, because of what God promised to this guy who's been long dead, we can have hope. Because God doesn't change. Because we see how faithful God was to Abraham. And even more than that, God's promise to Abraham was not just to Abraham. Remember, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you, but I'm also going to make you a blessing. And who? All the families of the earth will be blessed by you. And that's Jesus. And they could have that hope 1,800 years later, and 2,000 years after that, we can have the same hope. Because of God's promise and his oath, we can have hope. We can have hope in Jesus because God is faithful. God keeps his promises. God does not lie. And God is who he says he is. And he will do what he promised he would do. And that is the whole reason. If you have to memorize a verse from the text this morning, make it uh, chapter 6, verse 19. Memorize this. Let this be the thing that you leave with today. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I love the song that we sang. Your love is the anchor. This is our hope. This anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. And for us, as we learn from the same text that the Hebrews are learning from, our so what, our what do we do with this, is the same. Stick with Jesus. Whatever is going on and whatever temptations there are to worship anything or anyone else, stick with Jesus How do I know? God has promised. He's sworn an oath and he can't lie. God is faithful and he keeps his promises just like he did with Abraham and the generations that followed. Just like he said, I myself will provide the sacrifice. And he did with a God who is uniquely qualified to be both our priest and our king. There's one other thing that, that I want to leave you with that I hope is more practical. In the same way that Abram recognized he could not swear allegiance to the king of Sodom. He said, I cannot do that because I have already sworn allegiance to someone else. There will never be any lack of people vying for your allegiance, your attention, your homage, even your worship. And if we really truly believe that Jesus is better than anything or anyone else we could ever possibly worship, we have to do the same thing that Abram did. And we have to say, I'm sorry, my allegiance is already to somebody else. My allegiance is already to a God uniquely qualified to be both my king and my priest. It's Jesus. And there are going to be many times in your life 
where someone is going to ask you to make them or it or whatever the organization or state thing is to be your highest priority. I am not poo-pooing any oaths that other people have taken. Some of you are in the medical profession and it has required you to take oaths. Some of you are in uh, military or other you know, uh, uh, first responders and you have taken oaths in order to, 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 to have those jobs, to say, I will put this as a priority. And there is nothing wrong with that. So long as those allegiances do not conflict with the already prior made allegiance that you have. I hope to eventually take an oath of citizenship. I hope to take an oath to say, yes, I want to affirm Canada as my home. But I would never do that if they said, and this will supersede all other allegiances that you have, including to your God. Sorry, I can't do that. Because I've already given that allegiance away. We, all of us, frequently have a choice between kings. And I hope that you will, as Abram did, say, my allegiance is forever, first and foremost, to King Jesus, because Jesus is better than anything or anyone else I could ever possibly worship. And I know it, because God's made a promise, and this is my anchor. This is what God is doing throughout all of eternity. He is consistently redirecting our perspective towards hope and assurance because of Jesus. God, thank you so much for all that you have done in our lives. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the ways that you have shown you are more than capable, that you are who you say you are, and that you will do as you said you would. Thank you for providing the sacrifice yourself, for you yourself wrapping yourself in flesh and blood, becoming man, and dying for our sins. Thank you for being our great high priest, our intermediary. And I pray that it would lead us to worship and to hope. We pray it all in the name of King Jesus. Amen.